want to tell you tonight about a, a dream that be, was carved into reality. It goes back to 2008, and there was a man by the name of Gail Yo who had a dream for his town that, that he was living in in Kingsport, Tennessee, the place had, that had become his home. He had grown up in Beanhampton, New York, the carousel capital of the world. So he thought how wonderful it would be for there to be a carousel in Kingsport, Tennessee. He proposed the idea to a city alderman, and the city alderman scoffed at the cost, declaring Kingsport will have a carousel when pigs fly. Well, that city alderman was his wife, <laughs> so she didn't think that ever would happen. Undeterred, Gail Yo turned to his local Kiwanis club, and four of his Kiwanis friends joined in on his dream. Uh, they became known as Gail's four horsemen, four horsemen. They were not the carpenters and mechanics they needed, but they were problem solvers. Gail and his four horsemen attended wood carving sessions three and a half hours away in Chattanooga to learn how to carve carousel statues. Gail and the horsemen returned from Chattanooga and uh, as adept carvers, and the city actually gifted them a facility to work in. The carousel project had begun. Then tragically and suddenly, Gail Yo passed away in 2010 from Lewy body dementia, just two years into the project. So the question loomed, will his dream die? Well, the four horsemen and the community wouldn't allow this dream to die. The four horsemen uh, taught volunteers to, to sculpt. Each statue, they say, took about a year to sculpt. And then local artists taught them to paint these. Valerie Yo, widow of Gail Yo, carved several sculptures, including, bottom right, a pig with wings. Notice she said, this will happen when pigs fly. So she carved a pig with wings. When the group needed a frame, floor, poles, gears, electric motor, they made their needs known to the community and through social media, and every need was met. A zoo in Connecticut happened to have an old, the old frame of a carousel that they donated to Kingsport, and a trucking company, a shipping company, gave it a free ride to Kingsport. Mechanics emerged to reassemble the frame, and a local man who was a chemist by trade built the flooring for the entire platform. In 2015, after seven years, with the help of 300 volunteers and 700 sponsors, the Kingsport Carousel was ready to ride. It's a picture of what can happen when a group of people share a common dream and work together to see it to fruition. When I read this uh, this past week, I thought, well, that has many parallels to a building project that we've been studying in the book of Nehemiah where one man's vision, God-blessed vision, uh, was shared with people and they caught hold of that dream themselves and worked together with God's blessing and rebuilt the wall. 
even though there were many obstacles along the way. In the last two Sunday evenings, Tucker's been talking about those obstacles. Chapter 4, there were uh, attempts by enemies from without trying to thwart the work to keep it from happening. Then chapter 5, last week, talked about some problems within the the Jews and um, people being mistreated. And so those problems had to be addressed. But despite those obstacles, and even more that we'll see tonight in Nehemiah 6, the building of the walls continued. So watch what happens in chapter 6. There's a plot, again from the outside, from enemies. In fact, these names, these people should sound familiar by now. Verse 1. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, the Arab... And the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and there were no breaks left in it, though at that time I had not hung the doors and the gates, that Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me harm. Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem have already been mentioned and they've already been working hard to stop this work from from occurring. Sanballat governed the Samaritans. Tobiah was an official of the Ammonites. Geshem ruled the Arabs. But they didn't want this work to succeed. And so they've been working hard even now at this point to stop the work. And so they try to get Nehemiah, the fearless leader, to, to come meet with them in the plain of Ono. That... Uh, historians believe was about 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem. Of course, the idea is they, if they could get the leader to come meet with them, then that would st- stop him from leading the work, and perhaps the work itself would, would end. Nehemiah, however, sees right through their plot, and he states explicitly, they thought to do me harm. So how did he respond? Verse 3. So I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? And I think I've heard this through the years. Nehemiah said, oh no, to oh no. He said, oh no, to oh no. I think I can almost hear Brother Wendell Winkler saying that uh, from my classes at Faulkner. They knew and Nehemiah knew that if the leader is gone, the work might stop. That's what they wanted. That's what Nehemiah would not have. But watch this in verse 4. But they sent me this message four times, and I answered them in the same manner. Perhaps they're trying to wear them down. By the way, as you see the tactics of, of Judah's enemies, some red... Ready-made parallels can be made to our enemy, Satan, trying to defeat us. Satan's not going to stop. Satan didn't stop trying to tempt Jesus after the temptations in the wilderness. And they're not stopping. Four times they keep sending this message, meet us in the plain of oh no. But Nehemiah kept responding, oh no. Verse 5, Samballot sent his servant to me as before the fifth time with an open letter in his hand. Notice open letter, unsealed. And the idea was this could be read by others, not just Nehemiah. 
And I'm sure the idea also was if we get other people to read this letter and they become intimidated and frightened, then they'll put pressure on Nehemiah to, to follow through with what we want. But this is what the open letter said. It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says, that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors, you are rebuilding the wall that you may be their king. Let me stop there for a moment. It's reported among the nations. This, these are just flat out rumors. They're rumors. They're baseless. But they're trying to intimidate Nehemiah, even using falsehoods to stop the work. And it's a three-pronged rumor. Number one, it's reported that you and the Jews plan to rebel. That's why you're working so diligently to rebuild the wall that once you get those walls built and the city is fortified again, that you're going to rebel against the king of Persia. Number two, it's also reported that you, Nehemiah, uh, plan to be the king. And so here they're impugning Nehemiah's motives. You have something to gain from this. You plan not, not only to rebuild the walls to fortify the city to rebel against the king of Persia, but you want to be crowned king of, of Judah. The open letter continues, verse 7. And you've also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying, there is a king in Judah. So there's the third prong. It wasn't unusual for prophets to be involved in the proclaiming and even the anointing of a king. Think about Samuel and David, uh, Saul, David, and Solomon. So, so they're claiming that Nehemiah has this plot that not only does he want to be king, he's even appointing prophets to proclaim him king. These matters, it is threatened in this open letter, will be reported to the king. That is, King Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And the idea is if, if he learns about this, he's going to send an army to squash all these efforts. So come, therefore, let us consult together. And perhaps they're suggesting if you'll come meet with us, if these are false, then you can correct us and, and we can clear, clear up the matter. Of course, I'll refer you to what Nehemiah already knew about them. They plan to do him harm. So watch how Nehemiah responds. Then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say are being done, but you invent them in your own heart. For they were, they were trying to make us afraid, saying their hands will be weakened in the work and it will not be done. Notice he denies the accusations and he identifies the true source of these rumors. That is that they, these rumors have come from their enemies. One writer said, Nehemiah calmly denied the charge and then he put the blame where it belonged. So he met the accusation, he identified it as false, and he told them, frankly, that they are the ones that had begun these rumors. And here's a small reference at the end of verse 9, but a significant reference. Now therefore, O God, Strengthen my hands. They're trying to get Nehemiah and all these workers to quit. They're, trying, they're using 
intimidation. They're using rumors. They're using threats to try to get them to stop. But as Nehemiah characteristically does, he prays just a short prayer. Now, therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. The book of Nehemiah is punctuated with these type prayers. One of my favorites is in chapter 2, after Nehemiah, when he heard about the condition of, the, of Jerusalem, the walls broken down, it, it grieved him, and he's planning and praying to do something about it. And he's, and he's thinking about this, and, and deep in thought, apparently one day when he serves as cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, and he asks, what's wrong, Nehemiah? So here's his opportunity to, to ask for permission and even ask for help. But before he asks, before he says anything, the scripture says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. Before he made known his vision to the king, he prays. Again, Nehemiah, time after time after time, prays, asking for God's help. There's a second plot that we find beginning with verse 10. Afterwards, I came to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was a secret informer. And he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. Indeed, at night, they will come to kill you. Now, had these been uh, factual uh, plans that had been discovered, there would have been many reasons for Nehemiah to try to protect himself, to find a secure place. And Shemaiah is suggesting to him what could be a more secure, safe place than the temple itself. Now sometimes when you read the word temple in the Bible, it refers to the temple compound, sometimes the temple proper. And this, seems to, this language seems to refer to the temple itself. And if you think about that, you'll recognize only priests were allowed into the temple by the law of God. And so they're trying to, or he's trying to persuade Nehemiah to go into the temple against the law of God to, to be in hiding. Notice how Nehemiah responds. And I said, should such a man as I flee? Who was he? He was the governor of Judah. He was the leader of his people. He's a faithful follower of the Lord. Should I, uh, such a, because of who I am and the position I, uh, I am in, should I flee? Second question, and who is there such as I who would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. He's emphatic. Even though there are these threats, this there's opposing forces to him that, that uh, have just wreaked havoc in his life and are trying to stop the work. Nehemiah remained humble, unwilling to break his law or break God's law or desecrate his temple. One commentator said, Nehemiah was not a coward who would run into hiding, nor would he transgress the law to save his life. But he also notices something about Shemaiah, verse 12. Then I perceived that God had not sent him at all, but that he pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. 
Shemaiah was a prophet ending with P-H-E-T for prophet ending with F-I-T. A prophet for prophet. Nehemiah sees right through Shemaiah's um, his attempts here and, note, and, 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 and notes that he has been hired uh, to, to make this prophecy against him. Verse 13, For this reason he was hired that I should be afraid and act that way and sin, so that they might have cause for an evil report that they might reproach me. New American Standard renders this verse like this. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this. Then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. So yes, they're trying to discredit Nehemiah, discredit their leader. So that if the leader is discredited, if he's fallen under reproach, people will stop following him and the work will end. And so here's another Punctuation of prayer. My God, Nehemiah prays, remember Tobiah and Sanballat according to these, work, these their works and the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who, had a, who would have made me afraid. Look upon their threats, Lord. The prophetess Noadiah, we know nothing specifically about what she had said or done but it was something akin to what Shemaiah has done. But notice that she's not the only one. There were other prophets. So there are multiple people, multiple enemies trying to stop the work through intimidation and threats and deceit. But despite all that opposition, watch this in verses 15 and 16. So the wall was finished on the 25th, 25th day of Elul, in 52 days. 52 days. Less than two months. One of the reasons why I shared that story about the carousel in Kingsport. Was you remember the, the dream began in 2008. If you noted, it took seven years for that dream to be carved into reality. Seven years. Granted, different circumstances, but still, this should amaze us even still. 52 days rebuilding the wall with crude tools in, in today's standards. But it shows many things, but it shows how resolved they were to complete this work and how they worked together in cooperation. And it shows something else that I love in verse 16. And it happened when all our enemies heard of it and all the nations around us saw these things that they were very disheartened in their own eyes. And watch this. For they perceived that this work was done by our God. They realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. What a commendation. And what a glorious statement to make. That the enemies of Judah, the enemies of the people of God, were amazed and even disheartened because they'd been trying to stop this work, but they had completed it in an incredible amount of time. To the point where they knew, they knew that Israel's God has, was the reason for their success. 
Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. Uh, glory was brought to God because of their hard work. But also their hard work was only realized because God's hand, God's blessing was upon them. What a glorious, and that, that's the climax. The wall is, is, is completed in 52 days. But watch this at the end of chapter 6. Verse 17, also in those days the nobles of Judah sent many letters to, to, to Tobiah, and the letters of Tobiah came to them. For many in Judah were pledged to him, because he was son-in-law of Shechaniah the son of Ara, and his son Jehohanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. In the midst of those long names, notice Tobiah the enemy has some connections in Judah, in Jerusalem. And he's continuing those connections. They send letters back and forth. And he's even related to some of them. So there's a connection on the inside. And Tobiah, even though the wall has been built, he was, um, he was defeated in trying to stop the rebuilding of the wall. He continues to try to bring trouble to Nehemiah. Verse 19, also they reported his, Tobiah's, good deeds before me, Nehemiah says. In other words, there are people in Jerusalem, in Judah, talking good about Tobiah, even though he's been an enemy to them. And they reported my words, Nehemiah's words, to him, to Tobiah. Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. If that sounds like the work of spies, I think that's, that's the idea. But the point is, even though the work was completed, opposition continued. Opposition continued. Here are four applications uh, to take home with us. Number one, when you're doing God's work, you can expect opposition. When you're doing God's work, you can expect opposition. Our enemy, Satan, is going to make sure of it. He does not want us to succeed, and so uh, there's going to be opposition. Jesus told his disciples that. I remember Kathy knows Jerry Barber very well. Jerry Barber has a lesson that he presents. I beg your pardon, I never promised you a rose garden. And that's his summation statement to describe what Jesus has said to his disciples. Basically, since you're going to follow me, you're going to be mistreated. You're going to be treated like I'm treated. 2 Timothy 3 verse 12, Paul says to Timothy, All who would desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. If you're going to do God's work, you can expect opposition. Number two, we need to handle opposition appropriately. Nehemiah, I heard Billy Lambert say this past week, is one of the, the greatest treatises on leadership ever. I would put it second only to our Lord. Nehemiah is a wonderful book on leadership. And Nehemiah was a superb leader. How did he handle opposition? Number one, he did not let their words discourage or deter him. He refused to compromise. He refused to be intimidated. He kept to the work. 
He refused to compromise when it meant giving up on the accomplishment of his goal. And also, he turned the matter over to God. I like Coy Roper's comment, the more his opponents pushed him, the more he leaned upon God. What a great leader and what a great way to handle opposition. Number three, remember always that God is the one who gives the increase. That's why I love verse 16 where it says the enemies, when they saw that they had rebuilt the wall, they were disheartened, uh, but they also took note that their God had caused this to happen. And of course, I borrow this language from the Apostle Paul about God is the one who gives the increase. Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything nor he who waters, but God gives the increase. Nehemiah and and the Jews who were involved in the work demonstrate this. Yes, they cooperated. They got organized. They worked hard. They defended themselves. But it was God who blessed them and enabled this to become a reality. So number four, focus on doing the will of God. That was Nehemiah's focus. He wouldn't be deterred from it. He had this mission, God-blessed mission, And even though there are people trying to pull him this way and that through different means, he stayed focused on doing the will of God. Coy Roper wrote, rather than trying to figure out what will accomplish the greater good, we must acknowledge that the greatest good a man can accomplish in this life is serving and obeying God regardless of the consequences. And Nehemiah shows us that with his very life. After all, True success is knowing the will of God and doing it. And that's where Nehemiah stayed, focused on doing the will of God and not being deterred from it. We will experience true success in knowing the will of God and doing it ourselves. That's Nehemiah 6. So we extend the invitation of Christ to you tonight. For those who may have been studied and are ready to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, like Hallie Holland did this morning, we encourage you to do that even this evening. If you need the prayers of the church, we want to pray with you and for you. But if you are subject to the invitation of Jesus, please come right now as we stand and sing.